0: Hi, this is Way.
1: And this is Ariel. And
0: And this this is is Everybody's Everybody's Basic. Basic. I'm an arts and culture writer for the Houston Chronicle.
1: And I'm an arts manager living in Houston, Texas. And this is a podcast about the intersection of entertainment, dating, and race.
0: Yeah, so for this week's episode, I guess how I emerged to the realization that we really want our guest here Mm -hmm. um, is when I asked you if you think that dating culture and traditions of courtship drive and actually promote toxic masculinity, Mm -hmm. right? If if trying to get women or get Mm -hmm. men promote this idea of what it means to be a man that is damaging to society. Did
1: I agree with you? I felt like I agreed with you.
0: Did you... (laughs) yeah no you said yes
1: yeah i I agreed
0: and and i couldn't stop thinking about purple eyes so we have a very very special guest here with us today his name is josh inocencio and i first saw him perform this one-man show about i mean we'll we'll talk about it about latino identity about machismo identity about queer identity about his own family history Mm -hmm. in which all sorts of these issues about what it is to be a man is explored through this one one man show mm-hmm. and he is has performed at stages repertory theater mm-hmm. as part of their Cinemos Latino theater festival and he'll be back at the match uh, it remind me what date uh, again march twenty fourth march twenty fourth and in two weeks sending. performing a second part of this uh, trilogy exploring his own family identity so uh, welcome to this podcast, Josh Innocencio.
2: Thank you for having me. Um,
0: so, so this podcast we want to talk about masculinity and how it affects dating and it affects our personal lives. So, I, I, can you just like talk a little bit about how you explore that issue in your show? So, this is one man show called Purpleizing. Talk about your background, your about your father's uh, kind of background with machismo culture in Mexico. So, how, how do you how do you like tackle this idea of like what it means to be a man in your show?
2: Yeah, so just to give you some quick context, um, Purple Eyes is the first play in a trilogy, and all of the plays deal with collisions between ethnicity and sexuality in my three ethnic backgrounds, because mm-hmm. I come from three different um, three different cultural heritages. And uh, Purple Eyes is the first one, and it deals with my family's, primarily their immigration journey from Michoacan, Mexico, to Houston, Texas. And as you mentioned, growing up um, you know, as a closeted queer kid in suburban Houston amid this culture of machismo and just general kind of American conservatism and stuff like that. Mm. So all of the plays really kind of tackle and approach masculinity in some way as it relates to sexuality and all these different things, just from different angles. Um, Purple Eyes, as you mentioned, looks kind of at my what I've inherited from my family, um, specifically the men in my family, because how the the play moves is there's four chapters, um, one on each Inocencio male going back to my great-grandfather, and it starts with his encounter with Pancho Villa up in the mountains amid the Mexican Revolution. But how the play really started, actually, is I was in grad school at Florida State, and I had to write a short scene that incorporated comedy, And something about our ethnic backgrounds, all of us students had to do that. Hmm. And so I wrote a scene where my dad, it was his first job, he was an undercover police officer back in the 1980s. And he had a very unique job that he loved doing, but was actually assigned to him as punishment, where he would uh, dress in drag and he would go undercover to gay bars and he would bust um, like drug sales and, Look uh, our and face. vice. So many Look at us. Yeah, yeah, it's but it, and it, it, vice and things like that. So he would work um, glory holes in the back rooms of Triple X video stores. Those were more vice, but he would also do drug busts in gay clubs, including numbers right down the street from oh, here.
1: Oh yeah. No, I've been to a cake party there. Yeah, okay. So, so so
2: so what what I was interested in though is that my my dad didn't in particular, have anything like against gay people? In fact, he loved doing this kind of work. So, the mm-hmm. police force, which is very hyper masculine, you mm-hmm. know, even sometimes more than the military Better can day. be, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, this very strong brotherhood, you know, that's even, yeah. And so, but he was able to kind of use this hyper masculine environment to exercise an alternative gender performance in a sense because he mm-hmm. liked it. Right. He got he used to have really long hair, like down to his elbows. And he, um, he'd wear dresses, he'd wear tights, he'd put makeup on, he would come with another undercover cop who would be like his male partner. Um, And they would, yeah, they would just like move through the evening as a gay couple and they would like bust people. But yeah, but he loved it. And he asked for more. Yeah, and he asked for more. And he's always, even though like he can navigate that machismo culture very well and can be a part of that, he has very much always been a kind of outlier figure among his family. Like, when he was younger, they teased him that he might be gay or that he like, you know, was more in touch with his feminine side or they made fun of him because when he was a kid and all of him and his siblings played house together, he always wanted to play female roles, like mm-hmm. typically like big sister or something oh. like that. Um, so is he queer? Or? No, no, no. He's, okay. he's straight and, you know... And he's a cop. <laughs> and he yeah. was a cop. He was a cop, yeah, He's yeah. retired now. And, but he's someone that like, you know, even if he was bisexual, he's so open about those kinds of things that I think he would say, you know? So like, I really... I mean, maybe in a different time, different world or whatever, he would have been more prone to certain kinds of experimentation, sure. But yeah, I mean, he's very comfortably... Straight, but also very comfortably, like he likes feminine things. Like he, that's not a big deal for him. And so he's, but tied to that though, and and in a very like kind of two spirit sense, he is in our family on my dad's side of the family. He's very much the mediator of everyone. Anytime there's a spat in the family or some kind of imbalance, he's the one that like brings people to the table. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, you know, he, he navigates both of those worlds, and that's reflected just in kind of how fluidly he moves. Because his brothers are not like that at all they wouldn't have done that kind of work they're very much um foils to him in terms of their masculinity are they cops as well yes they are actually oh, okay. yeah so two two of them are cops and one's a firefighter um but the other two cops who i mean they're cool and everything but they are very much like they're just they, they're different kind of men than my father is okay. you know and it's very mm-hmm. you know as as the one in the family like in my cousins the one who grew up queer like i'm very thankful that i had him as a dad cuz he is mm-hmm. very like kind of in touch with those things and when I came out to him it just wasn't a big deal he just didn't he didn't care I mean my mom had like a huge reaction to it but my dad was just like okay whatever like he had a lot of questions but it was more driven by curiosity than it was like I don't want you to be this way
1: which is fascinating because you'll see I don't know I feel a lot of men who aren't comfortable with their ability to negotiate both masculinity and, you know, maybe their senses of femininity, mm-hmm. turn it into maybe an anger or a frustration. When I was listening to that story, for some reason, all I could think of was, I don't know if anybody knows the history of Marvin Gaye, the kind of the famous r and B singer or whatever. Oh, yeah. He was killed by his father, um, and his father would often dress in drag and... You know, the implication was the possibility that he was trans or mm-hmm. was kind of queer. And um, there was a recent interview with Quincy Jones when he talked yes, about how read that one. Yeah. Marlon Brando um, made love to all of these people, including Marvin Gaye. Yeah, and would
2: send him flowers too. Yes, yeah, like it was. was, a there, was there was a romance to it, yeah, not there was just a romance, sex. Yeah, <laughs>
1: right. Um, and, but tragically, in the end, um, Marvin Gaye was killed by his father they had a really, really contentious relationship. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it, I guess people will say in history, has to do with um, Marvin Gaye's father and also Marvin Gaye's inability to negotiate both of their queernesses. Mm -hmm. Um, And also able to um, have feminine energy and not turn it into... masculinity
2: and kind of like, you know, takes one to know one kind of mentality. So, you know, I think his mentality maybe like a lot of other police officers and like mainstream media and stuff like that. So I think that had an effect on it because he's always been someone who's like very, just has a very kind of fluid and even dual mindset. He's a Pisces too. So he kind of wow. goes back and forth. Oh, So he's a water spirit, you know? And so he has a, a deep, um, inner emotional life that he's mm-hmm. very in touch with, and I'm a Cancer, which is also a water spirit, so we flow together. Too complex. <laughs> it's, it's
1: too deep. I'm a Libra. I gotta fly, man. Yeah,
2: two and two oh, and drowning and th- us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't blame you. <laughs> no, no hard feelings there. I, I, mean, I found I, signs I can't date either. So,
0: yeah. I mean, I guess the stereotype is that like sons learn like what it is to be a man from their fathers mm-hmm. right you learn a lesson of like what it is to be macho or or a man in mm-hmm. any way um like so what did you learn about what it is like to be a man or what it what is a man from your father
2: um i mean a lot of it i would just distill from everything i just said in terms of narrative but i guess like I mean, I I can't really remember times, like, watching my dad cry, for example, but there was never any fear when I was growing up about crying, even in front of my dad. Oh, really? There was never a fear. It was never a thought. You know, maybe when I was, like, 15, and I was kind of figuring out my own sense of, like, you know, what kind of man I wanted to be, and when I was 15, I was very, like, I was deeply closeted at that point, and I grew up in a religious household, which came more from my mom's side of the family, but that was... um, So that's sometimes reared its head, um, not in a violent way, but in a way that was, you know, trying to compensate, you Mm -hmm. know, and so, you know, I had internalized this, but my dad had, yeah, I never, I never really had an issue expressing emotions growing up. And I think part of that, too, is also that I'm an only child. And Mm -hmm. so, like, just the the family dynamic of three people is typically more open than when there are multiple children involved. Mm -hmm. I I say that from, you know, just seeing how my friends with siblings interact with their parents. So, the, the kind of channels of what you're going through and stuff are just more, you know, they're more on the table and it's easier to talk about, usually. So, I didn't have that. Now, all that said, though, of course, like, I realized I was gay when I was, like, 13 years old and was going through puberty. And I never said anything to anyone in my family until Mm -hmm. I was 23. So on that sense too, there were things that I wasn't comfortable talking about. So it wasn't like we were completely open and there weren't any barriers, but at the same time, yeah. I mean, as far as what I learned from my dad though, I mean, just that there's, there's really like no shame in having like this kind of emotional inner life and tapping into it and, you know, expressing it because, Again, he never shied away from it, and he always he he talked about too his father um who like he always, my dad always says that he knows his dad loved him, but his dad and his dad died 9 years before I was born, but his dad was very like Mexican machismo mm-hmm. and his expressions of love to his sons were very conservative, right? My dad said he only saw him cry, like, one time. They did not regularly exchange, like, I love yous. There's not a lot of hugging and kissing and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So my dad, and even to an extent his brothers, like, they wanted to kind of rectify that with their children. So in in, in a sense, my dad responding to his father mm-hmm. about affection um, opened up something unique for me.
1: Correcting,
2: almost. Yeah, yeah.
1: So... I'm I'm just curious, and I get straight to the point of things. When I was reading your material, you talked about kind of machismo, and um, I was really curious about that. But then I was fascinated when I saw you because I was like, oh, he's white. (laughs) 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 He kind of ran as a white man. Um, And so I'm really, really curious to kind of understand. I feel like maybe not just me or or just kind of breaking it down for me – you probably have to be direct about your ethnicity maybe and kind of unpacking that. And what that means to you is probably somebody who reads something publicly, mm-hmm. but also has a completely different experience culturally.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bit of this in the, in, in your, in your play. Yeah. 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 Something, yeah, something
2: we talk about how you right, look. right. Yeah. And being so, yeah, so there's several ways of answering that. And mm-hmm. so, um, uh, for wh- yeah, so I very much have always had to navigate being simultaneously Latino and white. Mm-hmm. And growing up in Texas, there really wasn't much of a language for that because the majority of Latinos in Texas are darker skinned. And even mm-hmm. people who are not Latino in Texas, they re- they think that all Latinos are brown, that mm-hmm. that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. And so much so that when I was younger, I never identified as Latino never mm-hmm. called myself that. I knew where I came from and wasn't ashamed of being Mexican or anything. Mm-hmm. But I never called myself Latino because I felt like I wasn't Latino enough, even though I do have some cousins who are a quarter Latino like me, who are darker skinned, Mm -hmm. and I never thought anything about them using the term. Mm -hmm. But when I moved to Florida for graduate school, like... Most the Latinos there are white because <laughs> they're Cubans mm-hmm. and a lot of Venezuelans and Colombians are very mm. fair skinned. You know, a lot of Cubans have blue eyes and blonde hair mm. and there in Florida, nobody challenges their Latinidad. Right? right. They're just Latino. And, you know, they that's just that's just life. Like the racial question of what Latinos are is much more um, fluid in Florida than it is Mm -hmm. in Texas. And so it was actually moving there and seeing that and, you know, articulating this, like, oh, I'm not Latino enough. And having some of my friends who were Venezuelan and Colombian and Puerto Rican say, like, what's the big deal? Like, you know, that it wasn't even a thought to them. And so that led to a different kind of conversation of like, okay, well, you know, you can be white and Latino. You could talk about white privilege and things like that and talk about, you know, but also have your Latino identity because being Latino, of course, um, it's not limited to race. There are Afro-Latinos, mm-hmm. there are brown Latinos, there are white Latinos, there are Asian Latinos, there's everything. Correct. Latino just merely describes... There are Asian
0: Latinos? <laughs> I didn't
2: know <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, you think yeah. about, like, you know, someone who is... I mean, I, it
1: makes sense. I believe in possibilities. But
2: but the, the, the point is is that Latino is not... A, a Latino is just a descriptor of a certain group of ethnicities that you mm-hmm. come from under this broad umbrella of being Latin American. Um, but, you know, the specific ethnicities like Mexican and Venezuelan and Colombian and, you know, Dominican and Haitian, all of those are under, you know, they're, mm. that's, they, they run the gamut mm-hmm. in terms of the racial, religious, you know, experience. So, yeah, that's something. And so, Purple Eyes. growing up even in the machismo background it was funny because I started using the term queer and latino publicly to identify myself around the same time Mm -hmm. so purple eyes really kind of explores too is how those things work together like how I needed both of them in order to be comfortable with the other okay
1: it's so fascinating Um, so can you talk a little bit about machismo because when I think about my, my father is Growing up in my household is a, the powerhouse mm-hmm. and the ultimate man. Um, it he's like just a macho of, guy, yeah. In terms of my perception, and it it's not necessarily about um, you know violence or mm-hmm. um, all of these maybe typical just like roaring examples of of masculinity. It is about a pressure surrounding um, what it is to be a black man. Mm-hmm. Um, and how you can't waver, you cannot you don't have these freedoms so you have to be a certain kind of man in order to just kind of survive um, and he positioned that type of masculinity as something critical to upholding our household and our family um, so I'm curious to kind of learn about machismo and I don't know I feel like ultimately it it um, deteriorates his mental health mm-hmm. because he doesn't um have enough freedom to kind of maybe queer himself in mm-hmm. a way um and so i i feel like it's too much so i kind of want to talk about machismo and how that looks maybe different in a different community and maybe the burden or or the um consequences of machismo
2: yeah absolutely and I mean, starting with extreme examples, I mean, there's very much a stereotype about Mexican men like beating their wives and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, from there are past generations in my family, I know specific stories that, you know, my family certainly wasn't immune to that. You know, there's all kinds of horror stories about stuff like that that's happened, especially back in Mexico when my family was still living there. But yeah, so it can manifest itself in that way because there's very much this kind of like question of, dominance and being like you know the man of the house and then i think kind of like with your father there is some similarity as coming as coming in as an immigrant and the expectation of masculinity is even higher Mm -hmm. because it's like well we have to perform a certain way right for those who are looking down on us you know looking at us and so but it can also just be intensely like in just reinscribing certain gender roles, mm-hmm. um, and ones that become very, just like deeply ingrained. Like, one, one example I can think of is when, um, when I went to Mexico and I have some family in Guadalajara, um, and I went to go meet them, some cousins and distant aunts and uncles and stuff. And, uh, you know, a lot of the men and women now, especially in the younger generations, they both work full time jobs. Mm-hmm. But when they come home come in the home. evening, the men will still like sit around on the couch. And the women, even though they've just gotten home from work, like doing the same kind of labor the men have been doing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. will still like, you know, peel the prickly pears, pour the tequila and stuff yeah. like that and like conserve and them and they'll clean up all the dishes and stuff like that. And there was one woman, though, that like one of my cousins who like she wouldn't do that. She would just sit with the guys. And there was a lot of tension on both sides Ooh. because she decided to do that. And so, you know, some of the men were like, she needs to be helping the other women because it's an that insult to them. <laughs> because it's an insult to them. But on the other hand, it was like, you know, the women were upset because it's like, oh, what does she think she is? One of the right. guys, blah, blah, blah. But it, it caused an interesting kind of tension with both of them, right? And the other thing that I noticed is that, I mean, in in my, with my parents, um, there are certain things that they divided up in terms of labor that was very traditionally gendered but many things weren't like my dad has done most of the cooking for my life for example so a lot of those things were very fluid when i was growing up good for him so when i was um so when i went there you know i always had an impulse because i was a guest especially to like want to help the women in the kitchen either preparing food or with like cleaning up and um you know, they did not like it. So much so that I was like, okay, I can't, I can't bring my 21st century politics in here because they actually are looking at it as an insult. And if I stay here longer... You know, it's going to be offensive to them because to them it looked like I was impeding upon their agency and their ability to fulfill responsibility. And it made me feel very weird because it's like, no, I just want to help. I want to be nice and there's no reason why just the women have to do this. I know how to do this work too. Like I can cook and stuff as well. Right. So I can help you. But to them it was like, no, we, we can handle this. Like we don't need you this in is here. My
1: territory right, exactly.
2: You know. So it became so, but, but it was also in that sense they were exercising a kind of power even though it was Coming from these deeply inscribed gender roles, mm-hmm. but it was still their turf and their territory, so mm-hmm. it became very kind of nebulous. I you know? totally
1: get this. Yeah, like, yeah. It when was... it comes to my kitchen, man, <laughs> exactly. <See? laughs> when way comes, I'm like, can you just get out of yeah, my way? Yeah, you don't way, want me I... to help. No, I yeah. don't. I'm like, can you just get out of my way, and I will feed you. Just go sit somewhere and do something else. So I get, I get. It's the still territory. like a feminine
2: domain. Yeah,
1: it's a it's yeah, yeah a territory. Yeah,
2: and it, well, and it's and even. My dad is like that as someone. I think it's I mean, you said feminine domain. Sometimes it's just the domain of whoever is running it like my dad. Mm-hmm. I when I was in school, I cooked for myself all the time. Experimented with recipes. I love baking and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, you know, when I moved back here and right now I'm temporarily living with my parents, but when I was um when I first got back, I wanted to like cook stuff for myself, and my dad is just so pesky. He's like, we gotta add this to it. We gotta throw him this. What are you using that pan for? Like All these different things, and it just got so annoying that I was like, okay, I'm not even gonna try. But it's fine, because he he does so much of the cooking, even still, that it's like, I can't complain because he does it, but I, I can't like cook comfortably in his kitchen, because his he... Kitchen and my mom right says now. the same thing, because he's very invasive, like, breathing down your neck and mm-hmm. wanting you to do things to make it better, quote-unquote better, because he thinks it's better that way, <laughs> but... Yeah, but it becomes very territorial either way.
0: Can I you? think it's so interesting because um, yeah. for uh, you mentioned the Mexican household example. My household kind of had the same mm-hmm. uh, environment where my dad generally uh, kind of brought home the money. And whenever he got a new job, he would move and followed his career. And my mom would just find a job at the local right. university teaching Chinese. And she ended up uh, being kind of like a full-time, more than a full-time professor. But she would still do all the, most of the housework and cook. Mm-hmm. And my dad was um getting really stressed out about his job, and he had he had to quit his job and just not have a job uh it's about it was about a year ago um because of health concerns and so he uh they started relying on my mother's salary and there was a switch where my mom just like stopped cooking and so now, when I go home, my dad does all the cooking and my mom doesn't cook and my mom just works, and my dad stays at home and it's like very kind of strange to see this kind of arrangement. Mm-hmm. And uh my, my dad was, we had this conversation because I, I just was back in South Carolina where he talked about being really uncomfortable saying that to anyone yeah. when he went to a party with other professors or something like that. Now he has some consulting work. He says, oh, I'm doing consulting right. work. But he, he, would, he it's just really hard for him to be like, oh, well, I'm, you know, of course, I'm, I'm just at home, you know, maintaining the house. That just doesn't fit the, yeah. I think, for like the Asian masculine archetype is tied to career success is to you know it's tied to uh being a man in society and mm-hmm. having things and having objects and having a wife so yeah it's it's a bit topsy-turvy in my my household uh recently as well so i've been thinking about what what it is to be a man and do you have to have a full-time job and do you have to have to be able to provide your family to be a man
2: right you know? right yeah so much of it is exactly tied to that to labor right and yeah. that like even if your wife works that you wouldn't like need her to supplement your income right like Mm -hmm. those are kind of entrenched things that happen um i see happen in latino families as well um but there is i will say too like to um with dating um it can i see machismo very much inform a lot of like latino gay men for sure um i can see them carrying things that like, they're already having to deal with the fact that they're gay. So sometimes mm-hmm. they compensate with that by trying to be more of a man. Mm. And it can, um, it can like, cut them off emotionally sometimes. And it never, in my personal experience, it's never, like, gone to a place of violence before. But it can be, like, you know, they can um, be a little dismissive of, like, gay men who are very effeminate. Or, you mm. know, the kind of, you've probably heard the phrase, like, mask for mask. Like... That's, oh, uh yeah, yeah, a mask guy for a mask guy. Yeah. I mean, a lot of white dudes say that as like for sure, but I I can see some of that in like a, among Latino men as well. That uh, that like Latino gay guys as well. That kind of idea that they have to be a certain kind of man, especially to like make up for the fact that they're gay too. So it's that idea of machismo is very pervasive, even with you know a group of people that is generally. More leftist politically and all that. Like right. there still can be about certain gender things. They can still be very um, conservative.
0: It's so it's so fascinating when um because I have like I say like two or three like pretty like mask like masculine g- gay male friends mm-hmm. and those like make fun of me <laughs> for not being like macho enough. Yeah, which is like really weird for me because like growing up in South Carolina, you always associate gayness and queerness with like a sissiness or a yeah, femininity yeah, absolutely, yeah. but but it's like well it doesn't make sense because you, you can have feminine straight men and masculine gay men as right, well right and so they're just very like masculine and very much like uh part of that uh like gay scene I, my friend chris from Indiana does like kind of leather conventions and everything you know yeah. and, and he, 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 he has you know beautiful muscles and big beard right so, yeah you know, he, he, so he's much more masculine than me but i'm straight but he's gay and that that, that to me was a confusing, like two different categories that don't necessarily have to do with each other. Well, right,
2: because we don't, so we haven't hot. really, right? We don't <laughs> like that.
0: You like that? See, so hot, so hot. No one's ever like, I want the Asian Woody Allen with like the stringy, you I know, neurotic you voice. Anyway.
2: <laughs> you know that I do. But yeah, we we so easily conflate gender and sexuality as if they have to look a particular way, and, mm-hmm. and obviously they don't. Those yeah. two things don't have to correlate in any kind of way, you know. Yeah. Ah. Uh.
1: I don't know. It's interesting. I
0: Are you into macho men, Ariel? Are you into masculine men? Like men who are like traditionally men? I mean, Ugh.
1: well, again, talking about my... Well, if you look at my my father and, and how I was raised, they actually... There was a significant amount of balance. Like my mother was the career person at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, she was um, the director of like external or some internal external affairs under George H. W. Bush. Um, so she approved all of the personnel, presidential personnel coming into the white house. Oh, um, and then my dad followed her to Atlanta because she was working for the Olympic bid. And then she got a job working for the bid in Cape town, South Africa. And he followed her then. um, so there's there was quite a bit of balance at the beginning and, you know, at, at the relationship he was going where her career was going. And then when my brother was born, my mother decided, like, I haven't been around my children. Like, mm-hmm. I don't... I've had... I was raised by nannies for yeah. the first part of my life. And she was like, I want to raise my children. And my mother has not worked since my brother is born, was born and he is 20. Um, and my father took on the financial burden and... Um, became the figurehead of our household um when it comes to manhood because i have a really really close relationship with my father sometimes i think that he's raised me to be a black man like when it what it's weird like in dealing with certain conflicts He's like, you You gotta take your power. Basically, like, you can't cry. You cannot be on bullshit. Like, you've got to man up. Like, that's the way my father talks to me. Um, but it's weird. What you know? does
0: that mean, man up?
1: Um, if I'm falling apart or having like anxiety or kind of overwhelmed by something he's like you need to center yourself you and get it get together rid of, yeah. get rid of this emotionality that you're exhibiting
2: there you know it's funny you say that because like in i've seen some of that in my latino family members as well we talked about like my i have a great aunt who is very like she's just very tough, mm-hmm. and, you know, and me and my cousin, which is her grandson, we were going back and forth about it, and we're like, she's like machismo. Like, she's yeah. got her own machismo. Machisma. You know what I mean? Like, like, but, but seriously, machisma. because she's, she could not be, like, you know, bossed around too much by any man. She had to learn how to hold her own in a man's world, mm-hmm. and, you know, it kind of defied a traditional, like, gender Latina role, you know?
1: I mean, and that is, that's how I was raised It my Me being Breaking down Showing this amount of emotion, emotionality Was to relinquish my power As an individual mm-hmm. And in order to maintain power I had to be unemotional um, I'm not saying that was a mistake It's actually worked for me In quite a lot of professional spaces Where I'm able to walk in and be like Don't fuck with me And trust me it changes the dynamic Of how that workplace works Um, but then, I don't know. It's weird because the way that my father and I bond is that we bake cakes together. (laughs) So, for Christmas, I bought him a rotating cake stand, like, the Southern Cakes cookbook. And, like, um, like, these cake decorating tools. And he was like, you have to sign my cookbook that you got me. Like, this, it was, it was something that was so beautiful to him. Mm -hmm. Um, but also kind of so feminine that you, I would get a man like a cake decorating, a, mm. a big ass black man. My father my father went to um, Howard on a football scholarship and his nickname was Dr. Doom because he slaughtered <laughs> people on the football it's like field. Like a Marvel villain. <laughs> he was like a, just a fury. He had a real fury. And the fact that I got this man who was nicknamed Dr. Doom with cake decorating set for Christmas and that he was like a child in a candy store it was so adorable i don't know it's it was it was an interesting upbringing but my father is definitely something that is very complex and powerful Mm -hmm. um in my life when it comes to defining masculinity and yes i do gravitate towards um very masculine men i think because of him and because of his example but i don't know it's it's complicated
2: do you gravitate toward masculine men? Um, not necessarily. Like I've I've had it in different stages of like coming out and everything. Like I've gravitated towards different kinds of guys, um, and sometimes I just go through like phases of like you know what I'm attracted to or like what I feel like I want. Um, but I'm generally pretty open. But I have seen I've I can say for sure. I mean the first piece that I ever. Well, not the first, but one of the first, like, smaller pieces I ever made. It was a devised piece that um, that I was leading. It was between me and another guy. And one of the first... Uh, what I was looking at is we made, like, a soccer goal into, like, a kind of uh, queer altar. And so I was looking... I'm very fascinated by spaces and things that are traditionally masculine and looking at how they're already queer or how they can be queered. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like... Yeah, I mean, there is something about, like, a like guy in a soccer jersey that's really sexy. And that's mm-hmm. something that's very traditionally masculine, right? Mm-hmm. So, those kinds of things. I mean, I I often do, like, you know, guys with facial hair, which is also something, you know, traditionally masculine. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, you know, I've met guys that are, would, people would consider effeminate that I've been, like, wildly attracted to. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. I would say, generally, I'm, like, pretty open. But, um yeah. I, I, but I, I do like both. You know, like I like both sides of it. I like things across the spectrum.
0: Because hmm. I feel like you guys seem, maybe because of your fathers being a little bit more complex, that you guys seem a little bit more comfortable in their in your y'all skin than a lot of like my other male friends, including me. Where I think. I feel like I know a lot of guys who just aren't comfortable in their own skin. Oh, I've they seen feel that like, with friends as well, with their yeah. dads. And, and
2: their dads are what you're talking about. Yeah, more like, closed off. Um,
0: where it's just like, honestly, th- there are some guys where it's like you don't even know who they are. It's all mm-hmm. a front. It's a performance. I feel this all the time when I'm on a date. That it is a performance of who you are as a man. Mm-hmm. That you, there are just things you can't do. I remember in high school, like you learn lessons. Real quick, I remember this one time I, in gym class, I was I was skipping, and because I, I don't know, I, I I just skip, and this guy's like, "You need to stop skipping because that's for you know that's for faggots, you mm-hmm. you know you're, you're a little fairy prancing around." Wait, and what? After I'm that, a
1: confused. Keep
0: going. Th- I think this is like I had the same experience too. Yeah, really? Yeah, long before people ever knew I was gay.
2: Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah.
0: So I was like, okay, this is the last time I'll ever skip. And there's just there are things that you learn to not do. I know this. There are all these men I know who will never drink using a straw.
2: Oh yeah, I've heard that one too. Or like, they can't drink with, cause but, you're like, oh, my sucker. dad doesn't use this Or yeah. drink, they can't drink with their like pinky out. Yeah. Like, I've been teased by friends when I will like hold a glass and just like slight pinky out. They'll be like, oh, that's so gay or whatever. And I'm like, I didn't even, I wouldn't, it wasn't even trying. Like, okay. but, but yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's like, so many little, little things like that that men can't seem to like do for fear of some kind of like repercussions. <laughs> and I mean, which of course is tied to like, you know why is it so bad to be feminine right? right which is a larger question about like how we value women and what we think of women as in our societies you know even among right. gay and straight men you know like why is it so bad to be effeminate why is that such a insult to masculinity or to being who you are in a way right like what's so bad about women right <laughs> yeah
1: so the weird the weird kind of cuz my father imparted a lot of masculinity to me, which I have to negotiate just as a, mm-hmm. which is difficult, you know, as a black woman, people already assume that you are a more masculine right, yeah. woman. Hmm. Um, a part of that definition of what masculinity is is kind of this fuck it attitude of this is who I am and you have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So, what was masculine to my father wasn't that you held a pinky out it was whether or not you owned the fact that you owned, held a pinky out it was like yeah. it's like hey i don't want to go to gym and i'm not going so fuck you i'm not going to gym like that was masculinity rather than skipping gym
2: right 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 it was
1: this this arrogance this ownership of whoever or whatever the fuck you are you were just going to call it your domain, and defend it, and if anybody tried to, you would get, like, maybe hostile and a little bit aggressive over that. yeah, yeah. But it wasn't the small nuance of maybe what you did because that's who you are, and you can't really, you know, define or compromise
0: that. Yeah, and, and I appreciate the, the, like, owning it, but it's still, like, if you do this kind of stuff, you, you're gonna have to choose to fight the battle. It's like, it, it's like... For me, I don't want to fight the battle, so I just don't do it. So you avoid, you avoid, <laughs> right. you avoid that kind of accusation, you know. And right. like, yeah, you can be strong enough to own sticking your pinky finger, out, but you better fight that battle because that battle will still. If someone sees a man doing that, right, you, like his manhood will still be questioned,
1: right.
0: So either way, well, I think we're talking about just different responses to the same situation of certain constructs that we still live in. You get what I'm saying?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, but what she's very, what she's talking about very specifically is just how very traditionally masculine men can navigate that space. And I think that's what has made my dad so, like, confident in himself Mm -hmm. is because he has owned everything. Like, you can't, you know, you can only feel as inferior as people make you feel, Mm -hmm. you know? So Mm -hmm. it's like he. Mm has never seen a problem with the things that he does. So you can't make fun of him for it. Or if you do, it just can't go very far. Whereas when I've seen my dad tease my uncle sometimes, it's funny because they'll get so quiet. They'll they'll just kind of, you know, they won't like get necessarily aggressive back, but they'll just be very quiet. Whereas my dad will, if you do it to him, he'll just laugh and be like, yeah, I am that way. So it's like he, you can't, it just slides off his skin. You know, he can't, you can't get him on those kinds of things because he doesn't... He's not trying to be anything else. Right. So...
1: I mean, it's... I mean, it's still problematic, but it was definitely... Well, sure, because it has
2: a... It's still having to navigate something that's very delicate and very regulated, right? And as Wei is saying, like, you still have to...
1: Fight about... You still have
2: to... There's still conflict and aggression involved in some way.
1: And even, even now, like, when I deal with challenges at work and I call my dad because he is my primary advisor... He'll he'll say, "Hey, you are giving too much of your power." Like it's, it is always this fight. Everything mm-hmm. is a fight. So his his um, way of encouraging me or telling me is is fight the battle. If you're gonna hold your pinky out, if you feel like you're taking in, being taken advantage of, you can't lie down. You need to fight every battle, mm-hmm. which is exhausting for me. Yeah, like um but it is masculinity it was like a masculinity that i was taught that right. every single battle that comes on on my i don't know radar or plate when it comes to my personality or who i am i need to fight it was um, probably
2: exhausting for your dad too exactly, exactly. Yeah.
1: because we are so connected and see each other and one another um we're kind of feeding each other probably a whole bunch of, like, back-and-forth toxicity. Mm-hmm. And it's masculinity, but it's like a father-daughter relationship. <laughs> I don't know.
2: But, you know, what's interesting is, like, in a lot of... um I have kind of like two responses to that. First of all, I'll say this and we can put a pin in this and come back to it. Mm -hmm. What it was interesting about my upbringing is that my mom actually enforced gender roles about men more stridently than my father did. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. was, that had certain ramifications. Mm -hmm. Um, but, so that, but also like, With, in a lot of indigenous societies the world over, I'll use Native North Americans specifically because I know more about that, but this happens in, this happened in West Africa and in East Asia and all this as well, but like, one thing that w- they have like two spirit people. Mm-hmm. And in an indigenous, like Native North American society, a two spirit person is someone who's considered to be born in balance. They're 50 50 of both genders. Mm-hmm. And so they draw from elements of both genders. And mm-hmm. sometimes that means taking a same sex partner, sometimes not but they know how to use both genders in balance. Mm -hmm. And so there's nothing like, there's an acknowledgement that gender has wisdom in it. It's more about how you wield it. Mm -hmm. So kind of what you're talking about, like you're drawing from some sense of masculinity, but how are you balancing it with your sense of femininity too? And it's not bad, like masculinity and femininity don't have to intrinsically be bad structures. Mm -hmm. It's just how we wield them, how we present them in the world and how we enforce them on other people.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm so like reminded, <laughs> I'm reminded of, uh, did you see the movie version of Headwood and the Angry Inch? Yes, Hinch? yeah, yeah. Where she she sings the song about Plato's kind of, or the origin of love. And there's like the animation where humans used to be, uh, uh, it's like two humans yes, joined in the split. back.
2: Yeah, and they were split.
0: Uh, and then, and then Zeus split the men and the women. Yeah. And, and, and they were incomplete. And that's, that's the origin of love because we feel very incomplete without, the other, uh, aspects. aspect. So I'm a man, but I'm very incomplete without my feminine side because I was yeah, split yeah, by two. Sure. And so the, the reason why we couple together is that we, we want to become whole. So all of us are, are kind of half. So we're, we're like two spirit, we're one spirit people looking for our, 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 our other spirit. Yeah, yeah.
2: And there's, and that same dynamic you see so much in. Like, among same gender couples as well. I mean, oh. in a very literal sense, like, it could be just, you know, a butch and femme partner in a mm-hmm. lesbian relationship or a very masculine and feminine guy, but just in the sense of, like, this idea of opposites track very much applied to gay relationships. You know, mm-hmm. like, my, um, last boyfriend that I had, he and I were very, we were very much opposites in every way, mm-hmm. but just in the sense that, like, he was much more, like, um, routine kind of minded. He was very much, very practical and he kind of, kept me grounded in a sense Mm -hmm. but whereas i'm a little more like chaotic in terms of my work process and stuff and i like drew him out more so we were very i thought complementary to each other Mm -hmm. um so we're still very opposite you know so it's it's kind of tied to that same idea that you're talking about it's not limited to gender you know like it can be across gender or along the same gender lines as well
1: right
0: and this is a healthy thing like i mean you can we can yeah. want this and talking about this in a healthy way
2: I think so yeah. I think I don't think there has to be a total dismissal or eradication of like profound things that are attached to gender like I said it's about how we wield them and realizing that we don't have to stay in those things if we don't want to right that mm-hmm. we don't have to be confined um, but uh, Because, I mean, for a lot of two-spirit people, to be two-spirit meant to be elevated on a certain spiritual plane. Mm -hmm. You know, you would be the mediators in society. And that's why, like, even though my dad identifies as heterosexual, he's still very Mm two-spirit because he's working on two planes and balancing two, you know, different kinds of... Two genders in a very profound way.
1: Interesting. I When I think of my more... Like, I don't know. I feel like my whole adult life has been defined by situationships. Like, motherfuckers don't be in relationships for real anymore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But when I think about the better situationships, um, they were ones that the men, when it came to my tenacity, like, they just kind of were like, okay, we're going to let you do this and be this, like, head cutter person, like... Um, sh- Shanghai bitches I don't know if that makes any sense <laughs> But I can, I can just be really cutting And biting if I feel like I'm in a Competitive space mm-hmm. um, The men who worked Best with me were able to Kind of take on this feminine energy And be like you do that You, you cut people's Heads off baby I'm gonna chill in the background And and then when you need me, I can help you emotionally. And it was like it's like a weird nurturing feminine energy that works best with me, mm-hmm. um, because I have this kind of masculine side of like, almost a like warrior kind of thing going on. Um,
0: I feel like there are a lot of guys who are not used to dealing with mm-hmm. wom- women like that,
1: right? And so that's it's a little bit how I like I look for men who kind of have a nurturing energy that doesn't want to take on this warrior head on they're just like you know what direct that energy somewhere mm-hmm. and we can um exist together in harmony in a different way but but that's femininity like in a, in a sense the the nurturing of it um because you're never gonna win when you're when you kind of look at me head on and we're competitors it just does not work with me yeah um which is weird because I'm a Libra, so i my air sign, so it's weird that I'm like that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know. It's interesting. I think that it's... I've really appreciated this conversation and talking about masculinity and femininity. It's, it's positive things because I feel like in this culture, masculinity has a negative connotation because we associate it with violence um, and with aggression. And that's not true.
2: Um, what do you mean it's not true? Well, there's a distinction between masculinity and toxic masculinity, right? Right. Like, so there's, I mean, there's a, that's toxic masculinity is a way of describing a particular kind of masculinity that, you know, has an outlash in a way that is violent.
1: Mm -hmm. But there is a power in masculinity as there is a power in femininity and both Men and women can embody the power of femininity and the power of masculinity mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think when you talked about your two spirits that's that's what it's about mm-hmm. that there are power there is power in both energies um and they don't have to be violent and you know on one side and submissive and um maybe deceitful on another side. um I don't
0: know. It's just confusing for me because I think when I think of masculinity, I think it's just so coded into toxicity that I just, I, I, re- I don't really know that. Like, what is the difference between masculinity and toxic masculinity? Like, is it just a, a further step down the same path? Um, like, isn't toxic masculinity just a bad side effect? For- to even uh to the whole idea of masculinity
1: and that is the exploration like you talked about a quote from michael Ian black um in the new york times oh yeah, yeah um, I got it. about how maybe that is the next journey how do we find this masculine energy that is healthy that is good that is balanced that does not um have to be violent mm-hmm. um And that's something that we have to explore, that men need to be given the freedom to explore because they have not necessarily had that freedom um, in the past and because of machismo and...
0: Yeah, let me read you the second part of the quote and and get you guys to respond to this. So this is um, comedian Michael Ian Black's recent Mm -hmm. article, uh, and this this happened after Parkland, where he kind of noticed that most uh, school shooters are boys. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, talking about the theme of masculinity, he writes in the New York Times, too many boys are trapped in the same suffocating outdated model of masculinity where manhood is measured in strength, where there's no way to be vulnerable without being emasculated, where manliness is about having power over others. They are trapped, and they don't even have the language to talk about how they feel about being trapped because the language that exists to discuss the full range of human emotion is still viewed as sensitive and feminine. Men feel isolated, confused, and conflicted about their natures. Many feel that the very qualities that used to define them, their strength, aggression, and competitiveness, are no longer wanted or needed. Many others never felt strong or aggressive or competitive to begin with. We don't know how to be, and we're terrified." But to even admit our terror is to be reduced because we don't have a model of masculinity that allows for fear or grief or tenderness or the day-to-day sadness that sometimes overtakes us all.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting with that, like, because in my family, I have on both sides, or even all three sides, if you think about it, from because, you know, this. we're talking about machismo. My mom's side of the family, they're all from... Um, Eastern Kentucky which is fairly Mm -hmm. rural and there's different kinds of ideas about masculinity there and then there's my dad's mother she's from Austria and on both sides of the family though I have um, there's a lot of like hyper militaristic folks who are like you know serve in the military or you like respect everyone who goes into the military blah 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 but then you also have people on both sides of my family who were draft dodgers who went AWOL who ran and stuff like that Mm
1: -hmm. I fuck with it
2: and it was—it's kind of tied to that quote, you know, um, you know, with idea of being a man and fight or flight and what is more honorable and stuff like that. There, there is in my family, and even in my more immediate family, like with my parents, like we've never had a problem with those who ran. Like my mom, her father um, did a tour in Vietnam, and then he went AWOL and just left, and he moved back to Florida, and that was it. And, you know, my mom and I recently went to Vietnam um, on just, like, a kind of a vacation, and we went to the War Remnants Museum in Saigon, and as she was looking at all the, like, artillery and stuff there, she was like, I don't blame my father for running. She was like, I don't blame him at all. There's no reason why he should stay here. Mm-hmm. And on this, on the same thing on the other side, my grandma, my Austrian grandma, her little brother... Um, you know, they, My grandma was born in 1930 in Austria, and her little brother was born in 1939, the same month that Hitler invaded Poland. Mm-hmm. And so they grew up in a war-ravaged Austria. That's all they saw. So when the war was over, her and her two siblings, they all immigrated because they just wanted to get out because there was nothing left for them there. And when my great-uncle came here he was here for a bit and then he got drafted for the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and he just ran. He had the FBI chasing him, chasing him for oh draft Holy dodging shit. and chasing him for being a sodomite because it was still so illegal at that time to be gay. And so this is back in the 60s of course. So they oh they were chasing him for that. And it was just so interesting cuz and that's the subject he is the subject of this second play that's going up at the match. But um I I really take a like a hard look at that because I, don't, I can't blame him at all for running. You're talking about someone who grew up in nothing but war, and then he tries to escape that by coming to America, and he's asked to go to another war, one that's even more pointless, you know? And he just, you know, it's like, I can't... And there's such a culture here, especially of men shaming draft dodgers and mm. shaming people who run. And to me, like, if depending on what the cause is, there can be a bravery and a courage in running, too. And, you know, that's so a really, funny. it's like a controversial thing to think or say, but it's true, you know? I like, and my, my parents, they also, they raised me with the mentality, like they used to tell me when I was a kid, like, oh, if we, if there's ever a war and like when Bush was president mm-hmm. and he, there was talks of a draft, they were like, we'll, we'll pay for your ticket to Canada or Europe. There was never, there was never this sense of you have to go to war to be a man. It was very much like you get the hell out. <laughs>
1: it's, it's so funny because i I'm finally mentioning her cuz she's been wanting to kill me but my my closest like my very best friend her name is Arlene her father was um or he's retired a general in the you know highest kind of ranking officer and she has this really staunch um loyalty and like regard for order and rules and it's like a it's like the masculinity that was imparted from her father's experience onto her. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, and I mean, she's a brilliant human being, just profoundly brilliant strategist, just everything. But it is like a masculinity. If you were to ever talk to her about, um, Military strategy And how we operate As a sovereign nation It is like a weird staunchness That kind of comes out of her And I'm like This is your father's masculinity And she went to Vietnam I think like a year Or almost a year and a half ago And she noticed Kind of all of these things Where they called it The war of American aggression Yes, yeah (laughs) As opposed to um, What we call it here That's what they call it um, Mm -hmm. She was having to Kind of negotiate All of that strangeness Being that she is so interested in um military culture um but that that's what i was reminded of of kind of listening to that story of this this female friend again that i have who is so defined by her father's masculinity Mm -hmm. um and is also sometimes uncomfortable with the idea of um going awol or disrupting those those rules um but, yeah, I know a lot of women in my life who are really deeply defined by their fathers, the presence of their fathers, because mm-hmm. they had really powerful fathers. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that was a tangent. <laughs> was good. But, yeah. Yeah, going AWOL. Fuck that. I don't want to be. <laughs> not, not in terms of, like, oh, leaving the military. I wouldn't be in the military to begin with. Like, I wasn't built for that shit. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. No, and I thought it was, like, and what I mentioned earlier, my mom always, like how I said, she generally enforced masculine norms more than me or my dad did Mm -hmm. growing up. But at the same time, something she always said um, when I was younger, she would always say, like, nothing's worth your life. And so, you know, there's, there's always a kind of pressure, especially in the U.S., of asking, like, what would you die for? And she was always kind of countered that with like nothing's worth your life, you know. You right. you survive as much as you can, you know, as long as you can. So I always thought that was kind of interesting too, because whether she realized it or not, that's quite a rebellious statement to make, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Josh, I can't wait to see your show on March twenty fourth. Yeah. At
2: the match. At the match at eight P.M. I'm at eight so pm. Excited to meet and it's a stage reading, but stage it's reading. yeah, yeah. So it's it's in development. We're testing out a few things first. This is the first public uh showing that this play will have the little the little edelweiss Edelweiss. little edelweiss or an immigrant's fairy tale that's what it's called
0: and this is a kermit this is about your father's mother
2: well it's kind of austrian it's about that lineage so it's a it follows my great uncle my grandma's little brother as he leaves austria and comes to the u.s because um he he had a very like Mercurial life here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So not only was he a draft dodger and slept with men, but most likely... From what we know, like he had affairs with the actor Tony Curtis and the singer Johnny Mathis and so and he did he like starred in cigarette commercials and stuff like that so and he was a Hilton bartender, so he traveled oh all over the country so he just had a very
1: I want to be this person. <laughs>
2: but he had a very decadent life, but in a profoundly American sense, right you know so I was I, he he died five years after I was born, but I never met him he died in Hawaii. But I was always intrigued by him, number one, because I'd never met him. Just growing up, I was, my grandma has a brother, and I'd met her his, her sister, but not her brother. But then as I got older, I realized, too, that he was either gay or bisexual, and so... The curiosity just went more, you know, further and further and um that's how this second play kind of developed, has had all these questions about him. And the play is in a fairy tale form. That's why it's even in the title oh, so cool. because so much of what we know about him, you know, we treat as fact, but are really things that I can't confirm. So in the sense his life has become a kind of fairy tale In a mm-hmm. very grotesque, you know, Grimm's fairy tale sense mm-hmm. um, So that's why I kind of chose this genre too Because I'm looking at these imagined moments between me and him As like two queer men pursuing like unapologetic pleasure And yeah, so it's, that's kind of the core of what this plays about and it, it has an episodic structure like a lot of fairy tales do
0: so if you go to MatchHouston.org, you can get tickets. Yeah, they're free as well. Oh, they're free. So, yeah. Okay, so oh, you just you just click and get tickets. Yeah. Match, uh, if you March just 24. Google
2: Match the Little Edelweiss, it'll, yeah. it will come up. Yeah. Okay.
0: Josh Innocencio, playwright, performer, explorer, uh, explorer of identity. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. I know. Didn't I tell you this would treat. be good? I know. Didn't I tell great. you? Thank you so much. We'll have to get you back on and we'll have to talk about other other things as well. All the bullshit that we talk about. Yeah. Okay.
2: Cool. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much.